Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad to see you here. I extend a special welcome to people who are visiting with us for the first time. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left, welcoming them here this morning. Let us say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Our call to worship this morning is from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Cultivate the habit of being grateful for every good thing that comes to you, and give thanks continuously. And because all things have contributed to your advancement, you should include all things in your gratitude. One of the lights that guides this congregation as it makes its way into the future is the mission statement that we wrote together. We wrote it on the wall, and we say it every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. A reading for Centering this morning from Khalil Gibran. And when you crush an apple with your teeth, say to it in your heart, Your seeds shall live in my body, and the buds of your tomorrow shall blossom in my heart and your fragrance shall be my breath, and together we shall rejoice through all the season. Before we enter into the silence together, let us breathe deeply into the place in our heart where we are who we are. Our world is in such tumult. Our lives have so much stimulation and motion. Stillness is a gift. May our hearts open in this place so that we might be good companions to those who are sorrowing as well as to those who are joyful. So that we may develop the wisdom to know when to speak and when to be quiet. So that we might grieve our losses, savor our lives. Let us enter into the silence together. All right, well, I don't get to go home for Thanksgiving. Um, I mean, I'm home. I don't get to go be with my family for Thanksgiving because they are all in North Carolina. It's just too far. But I would love to, and every year since my children were born, I took them to Thanksgiving at one house or another. There are 81 of us that gather, and um, yeah, it's a big family. And um, there are only about four houses that can welcome 81 people, 
um, in our family. So we have the, the first generation is in the dining room, um, and then the 50 and 60-somethings are in the living room, and then um, the jet set, which is the 20, 30, 40s. We're down usually in the, um, well, I'm in the dining room now. I would be. <laughs> My chance to come out of the romper room, and I'm, man... It takes a long time to work your way up out of the children's space. Um, and then the chaps, which are the children, they have their own little um, tables, so the chaps and their parents are, are in another room. And, they're, and there are fireworks, of course. My Uncle Lindsay brings a cannon. Um, he's an orthopedic surgeon um, with, a, with a Jones for fireworks. And um, actually, my whole family... But usually we just do black cats and, um, you know, small arms fireworks. But he likes to do the cannon. And some of the houses where we gather, it's not really legal to have fireworks. Um, So the police sometimes do come. But, you know, it's not Thanksgiving till the cops show up, really. But in one particular year, I want to tell you about... um, Kaya and I walked in, and there were knives and swords everywhere. On every surface of this house, there were knives and swords, because Uncle Lindsay had just come back from a, a trip to Pakistan, and he had, um, he had fallen in love with Gurkha weapons, and so he had bought a plenty of them. He had grown up in Pakistan, he and my mother, and there are two other brothers and sisters, so they were missionary kids, and they'd grown up in Pakistan, and they'd gone to school in the Himalaya Mountains, and uh, he, his heart was always there. So he talked about the bravery of the Gurkhas, and anyway, um, so the Kukri knives are curved knives, and they were kind of singing of uh, blood taken in past centuries. And then there was uh, my little nephew, Thatcher, he's He's actually the son of my second cousin, so I, I don't know who he is to me, but my, like a nephew. Um, he was about 12, and he had a talwar sword, which is this long, serious sword, and he was brandishing it, chasing his little sister, Park, and um, they ran out the back door, slammed the screen door into the, into the yard. But, you know, of all the grown-ups standing around, there were um, mostly... Most of the grown-ups were either um, ministers or doctors or lawyers. So we figured whatever happened, we could just sort it out. (laughs) So I put my casserole down, and I went to listen to Uncle Lindsay because he was holding forth, and he's a very interesting man. He knows a lot of stuff. He's in his 80s, and um, he knows how to hold forth. But listening to Uncle Lindsay, one of our cousins said it's a little bit like surfing the Internet without a pop-up blocker. Um, (laughs) Because he'll change subjects really fast, and you'll be talking about uh, the Gurkhas one minute, and then the next minute he's talking about uh, Senator Trudis bulls and or um, the Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile, and you just don't ever know what's coming, but it's always interesting. And the Senator Trudis bull thing is kind of a sore point because um, my uncle David, who was a doctor too, but he had a little farm in the backyard, kind of a pasture with some cows and horses. We used to go riding there all the time. 
But he decided, he was married to a woman from San Antonio, and he decided that he wanted one of them Texas Senator Trudis bulls in his backyard. So they drove down to Texas, and they bought him a Senator Trudis bull, and they're big. They're really big. And they're kind of too big for North Carolina. Um, So they unloaded him in the back pasture, and they got a huge chain with links like this, and they sunk a post of concrete down into the ground and and chained him to that. Um, And then the next day, they got up, and he was snorting and grazing and whatever bulls do uh, in the other part of the pasture, just dragging this big cement thing behind him. (laughs) After a few months, he went back to Texas. So, um, listening, I was listening, but I was looking around for Kaya, and I was looking to try to see if Thatcher had gotten Park, but she's fast, so he's probably not going to get her. And I was looking in the back uh, yard, and there was this Brahma bull back there being led around by a cowgirl in a sparkly vest and a short skirt and boots. And the Brahma bull was giving rides to people in the backyard. And by the end of the day, everybody had had a ride on the back of the bull, except for the very elderly people. We even got um, one cousin out of her wheelchair and put her gently on the back. This bull was just peace personified, except when Thatcher came out with the sword. The bull kind of rolled its eye. But um, they might have drugged it. I'm not sure. But it was just meditatively walking with its dewlaps flapping back and forth, and everybody had a great time just, you know, eating food and riding the bull, like you do at Thanksgiving. (laughs) I had been asked to do the prayer, even though we don't have women ministers in my family. Um, They don't even have women elders in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. So everyone handled my becoming a minister in that Southern way, um... It may be other uh, cultures as well, but in the white Southern uh, culture, if something happens that you don't approve of or you don't like, but there's nothing you can do about it, really, you just pretend it's not happening. <laughs> so, but Rebecca, who's a rebel, down to the bone, and that was, this was her house and her Thanksgiving she was hosting, so um, she got to do what she wanted. Now, um, she asked me to pray. Now, Uncle Henry used to pray. Every single year, Uncle Henry would pray from the time my children were born, so they know this um, prayer. And Uncle Henry, Uncle Henry prayed like this, long, but he sounded like, um, Our God, we're grateful today for this family and its blessings. And we're grateful for this land. And for the Native Americans who shared this land with us. <laughs> and for the Puritans. I mean, he went on and on. And I, I just didn't have it in me. So I prayed something kind of short, and I asked people to call the names of people who weren't, weren't able to be there and people they missed. And... Um, so, but they very gamely went along with it, even though it wasn't the, the normal. And um, 
And afterwards, one person came sidling up to me as if they were um, telling spy secrets, and they went, Margaret Annie, that was real nice. Margaret Annie is what they call me. So the food and the company were great, and we had uh, lots of um, talk about mischief in the family. I've told you all that mischief is very important in the family. And some of you have heard one of the conversations that happened that day, which was... um, so there are lots of, there are about 12 cousins that live in this same town. And one of them has been the mayor. I mean, they kind of run the town in North Carolina. And they were distinguished alums of this Associate Reformed Presbyterian College they'd all went to. And the president of the college was a very dry person. And his wife was almost pathologically boring. You know people like that that you just want to go, how can you be this boring? (laughs) So one of my cousins, a lawyer, uh, decided he was going to make it a little more interesting by pouring some Kahlua into the coffee after dinner. (laughs) And this is a completely teetotaling family, teetotaling. And he thought he would let his wife have the cup that had the Kahlua in it. Only the president's wife got it instead. And so she started just cooing over the coffee. She goes, oh, my, this is just wonderful. I don't, I don't believe I've ever had a coffee that this is so tasty. My goodness. My goodness. And um, the two cousins, realizing what had happened, who were sitting on the couch, were starting to laugh so hard they fell into each other. And so the host, um, she said, I just could not let her see that. And so I held her gaze. And when she said, what kind of coffee is this? I just said to her, I grind my own beans. (laughs) And we're all supposed to have stories like that. That's not even the most outrageous one. I just don't do enough mischief in my life because I don't know why. I'm tired. (laughs) I guess. I don't have the gift for it that they do, but I long to go and sit with my family and hear these stories of um, mostly kind mischief. And now the best story of mischief was the host, Rebecca. Now she, and she'll deny this, but she got mad at her brothers when she was about 10. They were out um, making hay in the field, and the brothers had set that blowy thingy on the end of the uh, gather-yuppy thingy. I grew up in the suburbs, see. <laughs> and it was blowing hay all over her, and they thought it was funny. So she went in the house, and she took their bug collection and chopped it up and made chocolate chip cookies. And when they came in from the field, she was like, I made y'all some cookies. Do not cross her. And then after dinner, what we do is we gather in the back hallway for flu shots. 
It's a tradition. One of the doctor uncles brings a big cooler full of um, shots, and one of the doctor cousins helps him, and she, you know, gives you the shot. And we all have a chance to be brave together, which is what Scottish people like to do after dinner. So when we're at Thanksgiving, we're, we're having family time, and sometimes it's a very small family, and sometimes it's a chosen family, and sometimes it's an adopted family, but you surround yourself, if you're doing the traditional thing, by a, some kind of family and friend mixture, and it can be wonderful, and it can have high points, and it can have low points. You know, one of the people sometimes will get drunk and fall in the sweet potatoes, and you wish they wouldn't do that. Um, not in my family, teetotaling, remember, but we have our equivalencies. And somebody's going to get on you about your marital status. You know, why, why aren't you married again yet? Who are you dating? Are you dating anybody? Haven't you gotten a job yet? Are you still, are you still doing that job? That's, you know, it can be painful. And yet, um, what I am suggesting is that you find things there for which to be grateful because that's what the sermon is about. And gratitude is apparently good for you, even though, and I have to say this, the outrageous stories are way more fun to tell than the stories of things going well. I don't know why it is, but it's just more fun after your Thanksgiving holiday to be able to say to your friends, and you know who they are, there are certain ones who are very satisfying in their responses, they'll say to you, oh my God, we did not do that. Oh, I don't know how you stand it. And then you can feel very satisfied. (laughs) I don't know how I stand it either. (laughs) Everybody needs moments of feeling surrounded by love. And if you don't ever have them at your family, then I question why you would go back. Um, It seems like you might need to create a new Thanksgiving tradition to where you can have moments of being surrounded by love have pleasant time and pleasure time. Even though it's always mixed, it's always mixed, but we have habits of attention, and part of a gratitude practice is just to train your habits of attention so that you pay attention to the things that are going well rather than the things that aren't going so well. Because when it comes to attention, you get what you pay for, right? So when you're paying attention to the things that are uh, loving and warm and helpful, then you fill up your heart and soul with those things. And if you pay attention to just the things that are awful, um, then you fill up your life with those things. And so which one would you rather have? So habits of attention are important, and I'm just asking you, I'm not asking you to change your habits of attention. I'm just saying become aware that you have them. And so, and we need both kinds of people, or we need both gears, really, Although it's hard to change gears because some people are just the kind of people that are going to find what's wrong in any situation. And you'll walk into a room that's freshly been painted and, you know, the everything's wonderful person will go, oh, I just love this color. You did so well. And somebody says, oh, you missed a spot over there. And, you know, you need those people because they're like systems analysts. And sometimes you want to make the best kind of thing you can and then bring one of them in and say, okay, what's wrong with this? And then they're very happy when they get to do that. 
But a person who is constantly like that, is trapped in that finding fault mode, is not as mentally, uh, well, I don't know. They're just not as pleasant to be around as people who are trapped in the, oh, everything's just wonderful mode. Um, My sister's mother-in-law is an everything is wonderful person, which is so much fun because she had these um, children and a couple of the boys gave her some trouble um, when they were teenagers, of course, like people do. And now she's in the state of mind in her 80s where she'll say right to their faces, none of y'all gave me a moment's trouble. (laughs) I just appreciate that so much. They try, they don't remind her. (laughs) And the psychology uh, studies have happened that say gratitude is good for your sense of well-being. Psychology has just recently, like within the last 25 years, started to study well-being because we were always studying pain before. And um, so that in the Encyclopedia of Human Emotions that was published even in 1999, gratitude was not even one of the emotions that they listed. Can you imagine? And now they're finding out that gratitude is a very healing emotion to immerse yourself in. And so it's in there now because a lot of psychology is centered around gratitude now. And almost everybody who goes to a therapist is asked to make a gratitude journal because these studies have shown that college students who are selected for their similar well-being sense, their similar intelligence, their similar um, exercise patterns... Uh, were asked to keep a gratitude journal for a period of time. And after that time, the ones who did it were exercising more and feeling more optimistic and more hopeful than the ones who didn't do it, even though they were pretty well off before. Uh, It's just gratitude made everything better. So I would suggest um, that you find things in your life to be grateful for. And it's not a practice just for when you're sliding into the dirty dishwater of despair. It's a practice... (sighs) It's a practice that you can just dust off even when your life is going pretty well. And Thanksgiving is one of those times when we remind ourselves, oh yeah, gratitude practice. I know how to do that, and it's cheap. Which is important before the gift buying season. And who are we grateful to? You know, everybody thinks about it differently. Some people are grateful to God, and other people are grateful to their higher power, and other people are grateful to the spirit of life, and other people are just grateful to life itself, and other people just can be grateful to no one in particular. And um, however you work it out, really, in the Unitarian Universalist tradition is okay. So we just practice gratitude. There's a medieval uh, mystic named Meister Eckhart who said, if the only prayer you ever uttered were a thank you, that would be enough. I'm trying to find a beautiful quote, but I can't find it. Anyway, so gratitude expresses trust in the universe. Because it means that you're coming from a stance of if something good happens, it's not a trap. It's not a bribe. It's not a way of making me look stupid. And some people have that idea. 
they're scared to be grateful because it makes you look stupid if something bad happens later. Medieval mystic Julian of Norwich said, all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. Is that stupid? Or is it a pretty good gamble? Or is it a nice article of faith? Can you believe it? Can you believe the arc of the universe bends toward justice so everything in the end will be okay? Believing it just means acting as if it's true. So we might be able to act as if everything is going to be all right in the very, very, very end. Emerson says we should be grateful for everything because it all makes us who we are. That's a spiritual stretch for you. I never tire of thinking about gratitude and what to be grateful for. My mother, when she got cancer, she said, Meg, everything that happens to me is good because it all comes from God. I can't believe that. But I'm with Emerson. I can try to be thankful for everything that comes my way. So today, I'm trying to be thankful that my phone fell in the bathtub. Having a marvelously restful, email-free and calendar-free uh, sense of what it would be like just not to know what you're doing at any time of the day. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Please sing with me if you care to. I know this rose will open. I know my fears will burn away. I know my soul will unfurl its wing. I know this rose will open. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org.